So, our first confirmed case of COVID-19 was announced yesterday afternoon. We had the Director General of Health, Ashley Bloomfield, on the programme. After eight... And I hear there's panic buying in Auckland, mind you. If I'd woken up to the New Zealand Herald screaming front page this morning, I might have indulged in some panic buying myself. Shoes, for example. Anyway, Dr Chris Smith is consultant virologist at Cambridge University and one of BBC Radio 5 Live's Naked Scientist. He joins us again to answer some of your questions about COVID-19. Many of them have come in. Morning, Chris. How are you? Morning. I'm well, thanks, Kim. Thanks for having me back. It's a pleasure. Let's talk about the vaccine for a moment. News from both the United States and from Israel that a vaccine could be ready in 90 days. What do you think? Well, I was having a chat about a week ago to Cambridge University's Jonathan Heaney, Jonathan Heaney works on coronaviruses and he and his colleagues have built a system which would enable them to assemble various proteins so that they could be used to make vaccines. And when I say assemble, you have to be careful with coronaviruses and making vaccines against them. Because if you're not careful, what can happen is that you can actually make the viral infection worse in a vaccinated person. And this is because if the antibodies that your vaccine provokes in the recipient don't bind to the right bit of the virus to neutralise it and stop it, but instead they bind somewhere else. They can have the effect of effectively baiting the immune system and luring the virus and the immune system together, and you end up with the infection intensifying. So it's very important to choose your target carefully, and that was his caution. And he said to get the right selection of target and then work out how to turn that target into a vaccine that's a number of months to do that. And then to actually produce something that can go through safety trials and then produce something at scale and then deploy that, it could take as long as a year and a half. Right. So when people say to you, oh, we're going to do this in 90 days, well, yeah, I, I reckon I could knock you up a vaccine in 90 days. I'd go and get some coronavirus. I could chuck it in some cells and grow it a bit and see what it does. And, you know, I'm, I'm being facetious. But it's a very different thing between having a concept and having an idea and then coming up with a tractable, tangible, safe solution. So I'm I'm very, very confident that we're going to get there eventually, but I'm also sceptical and, and I would like to see reassurance that these things are safe and they work. All right. Let us not hold our breath on that. Chris, what is it that kills people who have COVID-19? Well, I was looking because the New England Journal of Medicine have just released a little clutch of papers this week on open access. So anyone can read these. And they're beginning to document in detail now what the people who are succumbing to this do when they catch it, what the virus seems to do in terms of presenting symptoms, how it tends to progress, etc. And it makes for quite interesting reading. And so the picture is slowly becoming clearer. The vast majority of people who present, present with a temperature and a cough and very few other symptoms. There's the odd sore throat and a bit of diarrhoea, but these may be just inconsequential sort of side things that are nothing to do with the infection itself. It would appear that the infection replicates quite well in lung tissue because in the people whom they hospitalised in China and then they scanned them with a CT scan, they could see evidence across the lung fields of this virus replicating, growing in that tissue. And when a virus grows in a, a cell, it usually destroys the cell 
So when you have wide-scale replication of viruses across a whole batch of cells, then you're going to do wide-scale damage. But then there's a secondary effect, which is that that growth of the virus triggers these alarm signals in the cells, which are there to detect when foreign invaders like viruses are where they shouldn't be. And this then lures in the immune system. So you then get a secondary effect, which is the immune system comes in, sees all of this inflammation, all this sort of stimulatory material there, and it then starts to wipe out even more cells, taking down even more healthy tissue and causing even more inflammation in the process. And I don't know for sure, but I suspect that when we when we get to the bottom of this, that's what we're going to see, a sort of picture like that emerging. As you will have heard, we've got our first confirmed case of COVID-19 here. Interestingly enough, and we talked to the Director General of Health about this earlier this morning, there were two negative tests and the third test proved positive for COVID-19. And he explained that there was a swab and then they needed to extract something from the lungs. Does it surprise you to hear that there were two negatives and then a positive? What's the best kind of test in your view for COVID-19? No, this doesn't surprise me. Because if you think about this logically, if I took a person who definitely hadn't been infected, and then 10 seconds later, I infected them by adding a small amount of virus to their nose, let's say, and then I tested them, there wouldn't be enough virus in their body for my test to detect. So I would conclude that person wasn't infected. If I kept on waiting a bit longer, all the virus that had gone up their nose would have by then gone inside cells and again wouldn't be detectable because it was busy growing inside cells at that stage. It's only when it's gone through a complete round of growth inside a cell, burst out of the cell and begun to infect other cells nearby and then also begun to leach out in when you sneeze and cough and blow your nose and so on, then you might have detectable virus. So there is, with almost all viral infections, what we call a window period. And the really classic example of this is HIV because when a person has a risky encounter, let's say, and they then think, hmm, I feel rather worried about what happened last week, yesterday, whatever, they'll often go to the doctor and say, can I have a test to reassure myself? And we have to say to them, no, because at this very early stage, there's not enough virus in your system, even if it is there, for us to detect it. And it takes maybe six weeks before we can do some kind of test that will begin to detect with, with very sensitive tests the first inklings that that person might be infected. And we won't know for absolute sure until perhaps three months. But our quarantine period is only 14 days. No, no, I'm giving you an example of HIV, right? And okay. explaining how a window period works. So with this thing, what we're saying is that if you are encountering the virus, you don't immediately trip positive on the test because the way the test works, we recover a sample from a person by doing a nose or a throat swab or in the case of what we're doing here in the UK, we do both. We then send those samples to a laboratory like mine and we use extraction techniques to extract the nucleic acid. That means the genetic information of the material on the swab. And then we use the polymerase chain reaction, which is effectively photocopier for DNA and nucleic acids. And we copy the genetic material millions of times. And then we use a piece of genetic information that lights up brightly if it recognises a target sequence in what's been copied. And that probe, as we call it, is very specific and sensitive for just coronavirus. But if there's not enough there in the start, then you won't be able to detect it. And so that's why you get this window period. So do you think, I mean, I understand you're talking about the HIV virus, but do you think the quarantine should be longer than 14 days? 
No, I don't, because we know that with HIV, this is something that once you've got it, you've got it for a really long time. For for the coronavirus, if you look at the, the current sort of information that's emerging, the longest documented incubation is about 11 days. So by taking 14 days, as far as we can tell, and there are always exceptions in medicine, so you've got to couch this with a, a sackload of salt, but... As far as we can tell, taking eleven, taking an eleven-day incubation, fourteen days should be safe. In fact, the median incubation for the cases declared in China was seven days, with uh, some of them as few as four. One documented case, one day. So the incubation period and therefore the quarantine period we're using, I think, is relatively strong. It's is, relatively well informed. Is it possible that some people may be experiencing no symptoms but can still be infectious and consequently? The numbers that we are hearing about the number of cases could be the tip of the iceberg. Yeah, I absolutely think that. And I think one of our first conversations, we touched on this whole idea that there is a clinical iceberg and that what we're detecting and what we're seeing and the very visible manifestations in the people with more dramatic symptoms, that's the tip of the iceberg above the waterline. But below the water is an enormous body of uh, infection burden of infection and we can't see that but in fact it's encouraging if that is there in one regard which is that if there is an enormous number of cases then the number that are severe as a proportion of the whole is much lower which means the, the risk for the average person is therefore lower. Yes I see. Why do you think the infection rate on the Diamond Princess cruise ship is so very high? Uh, I think it's the same reason that if there are other infected cases in that hotel in Tenerife right now, we're going to see a huge outbreak there too, because it's very difficult to contain a virus in a hospital with rigid, stringent, very careful infection control processes. We still get outbreaks in hospitals, despite the fact that we all know what we're doing, allegedly. We all have the right equipment. We all have people very, very rigidly confined to you know, isolation, etc. And we still get spread of agents around hospitals. On that cruise ship, having spoken with you know and, and heard reports of, of what the people on there were up to, they were wandering around, they were associating with each other in the hotel in Tenerife. One, one person, one commentator, said they counted 280 people on sunbeds yesterday, none of them wearing masks. It's the same on the boat. When you've got people who... You can't keep people in, their, in what amounts to a wardrobe for two weeks with no window, which is what some of the cabins on there were effectively like. You just can't do that. People would go mad. They, you know, this would be cabin fever in a different respect. And, you know, they, they would be wanting to kill each other for other reasons. So, you know, it, I don't think that that was very well done, what happened on that boat. There were people wandering around all over the place. I don't think that they actually enforced it the way they should have done, and I think probably people were, were probably exposed rather than protected from infection. If an individual has COVID-19 on an aeroplane, does the air conditioning system not spread it around the cabin? Well, there is that possibility, but people have studied, not for not for this new virus, but for other viruses that spread in exactly the same way, like the flu, for example. We've studied this in a lot of detail because obviously this really matters to airlines because if they could be accused of infecting someone with something like this, then that would be a medico-legal problem and they would potentially be in court. So they have investigated this sort of phenomena and it looks like actually your risk if you're elsewhere on the plane is very low unless you're sitting really close to an infectious case because the air is changed very frequently on the aeroplane but actually 
the amount of spread of a virus, it tends to be close to where you're sitting are the, the people at most at risk. The biggest risk, and in fact the elephant in the room here, is actually the airport. Because when you're at the airport, you're rubbing up against thousands of people. When you're on the aeroplane, you're only in contact with, you know, a few hundred on average. In the airport, it's literally thousands, and not just those thousands of people who are sharing air. They're all touching the same surfaces, fingerprint scanners, you know, the, the boxes that you load and unload your stuff into to go through the X-ray machines. All that contact, all those surfaces, all that shared air, all cooped up inside unventilated because there's no windows open there's no sunlight coming in so it's a, you know it's all shared air not very nice and therefore that's a high risk for spreading stuff and at the other end you get into similar environments and all queue up in customs and stuff and you're really jet lagged if you especially if you've gone say london auckland and as a result if you're really really jet lagged your immune system doesn't work properly so you're much more likely to catch something under those circumstances anyway this leads us on to another question, actually. We've, we've ruled out vaccination as the realistic solution anytime soon. What can we do about keeping ourselves as immune as possible in terms of preventative action? Vitamin C, somebody says. Any views on vitamin C? Well, there's not really any robust evidence for these sorts of things, one person did one study that I read, and it was a long while ago, on cross-country skiers in Norway doing extreme exercise, and they found that if they took big doses of vitamin C, it possibly reduced their risk of catching cold a bit. I don't think vitamin C is this panacea. In terms of how not to get really sick with this, well, there's not much you can do about your age, and age appears to be a bit of a risk factor. There's not much you can do about if you've already got coexisting health conditions, that's a risk factor. In fact, the number of people with severe disease were twice as large in the studies so far as people who don't have other pre-existing health conditions. So uh, those are the two major ones, age and pre-existing disease. Not much you can do about that. Stay, retreating from society, well, we've got to, we've got to eat, we've got to go to work, We've got to look after our families. So actually, it's really tricky, very hard to do much about that. So that's why these viruses are so successful. They've had millions of years of head start over us in terms of evolving to be very good at spreading. And we're trying to basically surmount what millions of years of natural evolution has endowed these viruses with the ability to do. It's very tough. Are there particular pre-existing conditions that one should worry about, mostly lung problems, I'm, I'm guessing? Yep. On the list, people with chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, COPD, so that means chronic lung disease. People in that position were at higher risk of developing severe disease. People with heart disease were at more severe risk. People with diabetes were at higher risk. People with chronic renal disease were at higher risk. Those were the leading uh, cases. But the bottom line with any kind of infection is that any chronic condition will lead to you being a bit weaker and a bit less resilient and therefore a virus does have a, a sort of a loaded dice in that case and, and could be more likely to make you unwell. So any pre-existing health condition is a risk but those ones I mentioned are the biggest ones. We've been advised to have the vaccination for the flu um, for this oncoming winter because getting the flu and being prey to COVID-19 would be bad news you would presumably concur with that advice. Yeah, the, the flu vaccine is a success story. And in an average year, it's about 60 to 75% effective. What do I mean by that? Well, what that means is in an average year, 
a person who's an average person who has the average flu vaccine will, on average, be protected about three quarters of the time on, on a good day. But it doesn't work every time and it doesn't work against all of the strains of flu which are in the vaccine because the vaccine contains up to four different representatives of the flu. There's, there's usually the two flu A strains, H1N1 and H3N2, which are the types of flu A that circulate, a flu B, and if you buy the more expensive vaccine, there's actually two representatives of the flu B because there are two different flavours of that. And um, that vaccine is compiled and updated on a yearly basis, and it's done on a bit of guesswork because what happens is that during our winter, we've collected lots of samples of what people are getting here in the UK and Northern Hemisphere, that's sent by thousands of laboratories over the Northern Hemisphere to the World Health Organization. They look at what the flu is doing and they ask, will the vaccine that we have at the moment, if presented with those flu types, protect a person? And if the answer is no, then they change the vaccine and the vaccine is then updated and then what is then deployed down in the Southern Hemisphere to Australia, New Zealand and so on is an updated vaccine and vice versa. So during your flu season, New Zealand... Australia, other countries will send to the World Health Organization what has made its way down to the Southern Hemisphere ready so that we can have vaccine prepared for what will become the next winter series in the Northern Hemisphere. So, so that's clarify, an ongoing thing. We understand that process very well. Yeah, the flu vaccine will not stop you getting COVID-19, but it may enable you to survive it better. Just checking all these changes in the flu vaccine, they are not as risky as the problems with rushing a vaccine into market that you outlined earlier because basically it's the same kind of thing that's right the way that these things are made is having collected samples of flu from a person who's had flu that flu is then mixed in the laboratory with a virus that grows very well in eggs and the, you end up with a sort of hybrid virus that looks like the one that was causing the disease in the person but has the ability of the egg virus to grow well in eggs and then you can make enormous amounts of it in an egg which is a very safe, very well understood, very stable way to make these vaccines because the vast majority at the moment of flu vaccines are still made in laboratory chicken's eggs. It's literally millions of eggs every year but because that process is very well understood, it's very safe and the vaccine that we make is you take the virus out that grows in the egg and you blitz it, you chemically demolish it, so you have shrapnel, a virus, and that's got a split vaccine and that's what we inject into people to show their immune system what bits of the virus look like and that works very effectively for the flu. What are the chances, I am asked, of this being a biological weapon gone wrong? I'd say next to zero. Because although that's theoretically possible, and, and actually I think if that were going to be the case, A, some other nutcase would have, would have probably done this, and they haven't. And what stopped them doing this? Because it's not hard to make terror weapons. And you know, I've read published papers where people have shown a few simple things you could do to a common virus and weaponize it quite nicely. People don't do it because they know full well that where these things would come home to roost are in the countries which are ill-equipped to deal with them. And those countries are the poorest countries, which are usually, by and large, where the nutcases come from in the first place. So it would be the worst-owned goal that anyone could possibly score. And if they did, I for don't instance, know. I have think, an antidote I think, the or a I, think, I think the developed world has its fair share of nutcases, Chris. But anyway, we're not necessarily talking about nutcases or terrorists, just a mistake. How's that? Yeah, there's not really any evidence for that. And um, we've 
pretty much track down where this thing came from. It looks very, very similar to a virus which is found in pangolins, and they're traded en masse in Chinese markets. That's why they're now an endangered species. And the samples of the virus we have from Ground Zero at Wuhan and also the samples that are spreading in the people, showing that the two are connected, that's very similar to this pangolin virus, and that's very similar to a bat coronavirus. So I don't think anyone engineered this. I think this basically is doing what SARS did 15, 20 years ago. Right. That's an unnecessary conspiracy theory then, you would say. Occam's razor. Yeah, I mean, for the reason I've outlined, which is that it would, if someone were doing this with nefarious intent, they would do it having invented the vaccine already. Now, if they were bright enough to invent the vaccine, then they would already be selling that vaccine because they'd see the opportunity to make a quick buck. And they'd have also deployed it to all the people who needed protecting. And we haven't seen anyone orchestrating a mass vaccination campaign at the moment. So I just don't believe that that's the case. We, um, we have had various queries about travel i don't know whether you can generalize about this for example we've had a text from an american planning to come to new zealand in 10 days time should they cancel or is the risk low i mean i suspect we should be more worried about them coming here than they should be worried about coming here if you see what i mean isn't that the case Yep. Yeah, I concur. There's, there's more action in America, and, and you should worry about that for more reasons than just this. I'm just kidding. No, no anti-American sentiment. I'm no, just no, kidding. No, 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 um, no. But no, no, if, <laughs> no, but America's a bigger place, and with a lot more travel flux. And many and more nutcases. And a lot more people... Oh, well, that too. One, one of them uh, quite high up in the government. And um, the point about that is that you've got a lot of people flying into the country and therefore potentially bringing this in via all kinds of routes. And it could well be that there's an undercurrent of infection spreading through America, in the same way as I suspect there is in pretty much every country on Earth now. That's why what happened in Italy happened. Scientists estimate that the outbreak in northern Italy had probably been smouldering on for quite some time, maybe a month, before we saw this more explosive set of numbers appear when it got found and detected and there was the, the, the concern last week or last weekend. I suspect the same is true in pretty much every country. So America, with that kind of density of population, travel flux, etc., big international travel hub, they're probably much more likely to, to, to send you cases than the other way around. Uh, they might need to be worried about being stranded somewhere, do you think? Well, look, there are worse places on Earth to be stranded than New Zealand, of course. That's quite right. A couple in their early <laughs> 70s, and I mention their age advisedly, I think. A couple in their early 70s are booked to go to Chicago and Germany and Canada in mid-April. What would you say to them? Should they go? Look, at the moment, we've got no reason to suspect that the risk is any higher in these other places than it is at home at the moment you have to sort of weigh these things up the, the travel advice i would give to somebody who was say a very young person who had no prior health condition no other health problems would be probably a bit different than the health advice i give to someone who was older anyway because everyone is more at risk the older they get from anything but at the moment the places they're talking about traveling from too don't have outbreaks of disease Presumably they've got to stop over somewhere, so they might want to think about the route they're going to take. I wouldn't possibly go via Singapore at the moment, for example. If that can be avoided, that would be the best option. You probably wouldn't. You'd just go west coast US, wouldn't you? And then on to Chicago. So I don't think there's really any major risk there at the moment, but that may change, and we just have to be prepared to adapt our plans as more information and this outbreak emerges. How long 
Does the virus live outside the body on surfaces, for example? We understand quite a bit about this now because not just for this virus but for other viruses this has been quite well studied because it has enormous implications for infection control both on things like cruise ships with and particularly viruses like norovirus but also in places like hospitals where you have to work out what's the most effective way to decontaminate an area, sterilise an area, deep clean and then put patients back etc. Now for things like the flu and the reason I'm referring to the flu is that although these are different viruses, the flu and this coronavirus, they're different families of virus completely, they nonetheless are structurally a bit similar in the sense that the flu virus particles have around their outside an oily coat, which is called the envelope. So do coronaviruses. Now, why that matters is that that can be easily broken apart by a number of factors, how dry a surface is, how much sunlight's there, whether or not there's any alcohol used to wipe down or swab down a surface or soap and water, etc. So those sorts of viruses are quite fragile. So when they come out of the body, they don't last for very long in the environment. So as far as we can tell at the moment, this is behaving a bit like the flu, and the flu on a surface lasts for not more than a couple of days. On clothing, similar, but actually the time is measured more in minutes and you know a few hours rather than days. Norovirus, on the other hand, to give you a comparison, is weeks. So it's relatively easy for this thing to, to clean it out of the environment once the source of infection is removed. Are we sure that hand sanitizer, which we are told on the label kills 99.9 of all known germs, will it kill coronaviruses? Well, it'll kill them on your hands, but... Yeah. Not in the air, of course. No. And that's the point, that, yes, you can only achieve so much by washing your hands. But I would say to people, these hand gels, they're very expensive. Soap is very cheap. And in head-to-head -head trials, people have actually done the trial and they've compared how good is soap versus hand sanitizer when, of course, soap and water are available. And I appreciate they're not always, so, you know, I accept that. You can't beat soap and water. You cannot beat soap and it's water. It's the best. I'm glad you said that because people are panic buying hand sanitizer here. Yeah, go and buy a bar of soap. If you've got access to soap and water, A, it smells nice and it won't make your sandwiches taste horrible. That's why I prefer it in the hospital when I'm doing my rounds. Um, but it is really good. And in studies where people have looked at, say, recovery of various bacteria and viruses from people's skin, soap and water outperformed all of those hand sanitizers. The hand sanitizers, if you've got them and you've bought them, they will work against this virus because, as I said, it has this oily coat called the envelope around the particles and alcohol, which is what's in the, in the alcoholic hand sanitizer, is there at a sufficient concentration to disrupt that coat. And once the coat is broken apart, the virus is no longer infectious. I mean, the advantage of hand sanitizer, I suppose, is you can carry it with you in a wee bottle and squirt it on. Yeah, it's a bit more inconvenient carrying the kitchen sink around, that is true. But uh, if you're in your house or at work, for example, and uh, you want to, to just go and wash your hands with soap, you, you don't need to, to feel that uh, you are at higher risk through having done that. You've probably done it better than someone who's used hand gel. People are saying, why are we so panicked? This is one specific text that's come in. Why are we so panicked, given that commentators are claiming that COVID-19 is not as threatening to the general population as annual flu. I don't know what commentators they've been listening to, but that's rubbish, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, let's put the numbers on this. So I see where they're coming from, because if we look at the flu, every year the flu 
around the world claims about 600 to 750,000 lives. In a bad year, it might be as many as a million people. And of course, with this new outbreak, we're nowhere near that. So the flu does appear to be quite dramatic. This new one, on the other hand, you say, well, how does its mortality compare with flu? Because in the year when flu claims about 650,000 lives a year, that equates to a mortality rate of the flu of about 0.05%, or as much in a bad year as 0.1%. So in other words, one in every thousand people who get it might die. With this new infection, based on the numbers we have so far, so one must interpret them with caution, the numbers being reported for the mortality rate range from between about 0.5% to up to 5%. Now, I think the 5% is probably a bit much, and it's probably closer to 1% or half a percent. That's still about 10 times higher than the flu. So it's 10 times more lethal if you catch it than the flu is each year. Then you ask, well, how hard is it to catch the flu? How many people, when we have a case of flu, do they give it to? This is called the reproduction number, R0. And for flu, the average is about 1.5. So in other words, for every case of the flu, you get between one and two new cases of the flu. For this new virus, that number is about three, maybe as high as four. So for each case, you get three or four new cases. So in other words, it appears to be easier to spread and it appears to be more lethal than flu. And this is why people are a bit concerned because every body on the planet's surface at the moment is susceptible to this new virus because it's never circulated. There's no pre-existing immunity. So therefore you have a more infectious agent that is potentially a bit more lethal than flu with an entirely susceptible human population. So allowed to just go for it, it could potentially claim even more lives than seasonal flu does. But because it's just the beginning, it hasn't done that yet. So obviously the numbers are smaller. All these people who are due to fly to somewhere or from somewhere via Singapore are now texting me to say, what? What are we supposed to do? What would you do? Reroute? Very tricky. And the thing is that because the wording on insurance documents means if you just decide not to fly because of a personal choice, you're not covered. So you won't get your money back. And uh, so therefore, one has to talk nicely to an airline and see if they'll allow you to change if you've had second thoughts. Or you just have to make your own sort of risk assessment. And you say, well, am I, am I going to go and do this? Do I want to fly to an area where there is currently activity and disease activity is circulating? Do I feel that I might be at high risk? If you are, then you might want to have second thoughts. If you're a young, fit, healthy person who's probably at low risk and you're going to an area which already has low risk because there's not much disease activity there, then again probably you might want to decide to go ahead. No, risk assessment's always tricky, isn't it? Um, somebody points out that in New Zealand we have very high rates of asthma and they are wondering whether asthma and COVID-19 would be a, a very worrying combination. Well, it certainly could be because if you are sufficiently asthmatic, and what I mean by that is some people have mild asthma but some people have very severe asthma and that very severe asthma is managed by immunosuppressive drugs because asthma is an allergy and you damp down the immune response with drugs in order to stop it 
doing what it does. If a person is sufficiently immunosuppressed by their asthma, then they could be at higher risk of this. And so, yes, it's not necessarily just the asthma that would get them. It would be the fact that to manage their disease, they're, they're a bit immunosuppressed. Uh, if they already have bad chest um, problems because of asthma or a related condition, that would also place them at probably higher risk because they're, they've got less reserve to start with. What do you think is ultimately responsible for the outbreak, given that, according to some studies, 16 of the original cluster of COVID people in China didn't have any connection to the market that's been identified as the source? What do you doubt well, I think that? This is, well, you know, it's very early days. So we don't know yet exactly what the picture is. With SARS, for example, it wasn't until 2005 that these brace of papers appeared. I remember reading them in the journal Science, which which actually showed very clearly what must have happened with SARS. And, and it made a fascinating example of how they unpicked the process of transmission of that virus. But it takes a long while because the dust settles, information emerges there is clarity through the mist as it were so at this stage i think we just don't have enough information to make clear conclusions the initial observation was that the people who were testing for this positive for this had strong connection to that market and when scientists went in and investigated in the market they took a number of samples from within the market and 31 out of 35 samples were strongly positive for this virus, showing that that was a hotbed of activity. Now you're saying, well, what about if people who tested positive but didn't have any direct connection to the market? Well, say they were handed something that had come from the market and they got infected from that source, for example, or someone who got it from the market then gave it to them. In those early days, we, we know that virus probably emerged sometime late November, early December, based on the genetic and molecular clock that we can, we can track as to how the virus changes over time. It would put the origin at late November, early December. So there was quite a bit of spread before people began sampling people and testing people. So I, I think probably a number of rounds of transmission were going on. So it's not a given that you have to be associated with the market to be in that initial cohort of people. A couple of people have asked, hopefully, whether... Drinking the alcohol might be better than just smearing it on your hands. <laughs> um, but mm. I suspect there would be... I wouldn't advise that, to be honest, though, Kim, because it doesn't taste very nice. No. And uh, also... They purposefully, they purposefully use uh, various bitter-tasting chemicals in the hand gel to deter these, because they're intended for use in hospital, and some of our patients in hospitals do get tempted, so they make it taste particularly unappetising, and they also use isopropanol, which is not the same stuff as, as the ethanol you find in your whiskey. It doesn't taste as good. Right, so potable alcohol is not a substitute internally. No. Um, just no. finally, Chris, it's been great talking to you again. Are there any gratuitous errors of fact or exaggeration doing the rounds that you would like to counter at all? Um, mm, I think the face masks one is the one that's got my goat the most. Yes. Because the people who are making these things are cashing in like there's no tomorrow on that industry along with the hand sanitizer people i mean they're doing very nicely thank you they're cleaning up nicely i suppose you could say but the the face mask business is is a terrible con really because i, th I think um if you look at the data, there's no evidence that these cheap and nasty face masks that you buy for sanding your floor or laying loft insulation do anything whatsoever apart from empty your wallet. And um, you'd be better off just pop to the pub, buy a beer, and A, it'll probably cost you less, 
B, it will probably be much more enjoyable to get your mouth around that, and C, it will probably give you equivalent protection against this virus. So if you're going to wear a face mask, do it properly or just don't do it. Go to the go and get the really proper ones, get f- properly fit tested so it makes a seal around the m- nose and mouth and protect your eyes because the other thing people do is put a face mask on, leave their eyes exposed and your eyes are connected to your nose via your tear duct. Your eyes can be infected but then also the tears will wash anything that lands on your eyes down into your nose and it gets in that way anyway. So that's why you always see people when they go to these sort of outbreak situations, they've always got eye, eye protection and a face mask on. So it's very, very hard to achieve adequate protection with the cheap and nasty sorts of things you get in the hardware store. Thank you, Chris. Good advice. Virologist Chris Smith. Thank you. He's a virologist at Cambridge University, one of BBC Radio 5 Live's Naked Scientist.